BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to The Daily Break. I'm Andrew Tallman. Here's what's happening today at Newsweek. One of the most mysterious things about COVID-19 has been the wide array of ways in which people suffer from it or not and recover from it or not. Most people who get the infection, if they have symptoms at all, recover within a few days. Some people take a week, two weeks, four weeks, 12 weeks, or well, they're still ill, even six months to a year or more later. And this is where we have the distinction between COVID and long COVID or post-COVID, as some doctors call it. About 10 to 20% of individuals suffering from COVID experience mid and long-term effects even after they recover from the initial illness. These symptoms include fatigue, headache, shortness of breath, but also, most concerningly, cognitive dysfunction and loss of mental focus. Enter the University of Veterinary Medicine in Hanover, where they have now done a study for the very first time showing that dogs are capable not just of detecting whether people have COVID itself are infectious, but whether they have long COVID, something that so far has been very difficult to identify diagnostically. And now what the dogs are able to detect, and in case you're not familiar, dogs have an unbelievable ability to smell things, even the smallest of particles. I mean, tracking dogs can track you across cement, across cement, just to think about that for a second. But of course, dogs have been employed to sniff all kinds of things from bomb making material to trace amounts of illicit drugs, and of course, more recently, for various medical conditions, including COVID-19. But this is a little bit different because they're not sniffing the virus itself. What they're able to smell is the volatile organic compounds that are created in metabolic procedures during the infection that then continue to have these effects. So it's not the COVID they're smelling, it's the effects of COVID underneath whatever symptoms the people might be having. And those organic compounds that were created during respiratory disease and then showing up as post-disease symptoms, they can smell those and at an 85% accuracy rate, which is way more effective than using anything like an antibody test or a PCR, and then can be used to guide doctors in what kinds of therapy they use to treat these patients. So while you might think that dogs are some kind of therapeutic device, you know, petting them makes you feel better, their medical uses are proving to be far greater than anybody imagined. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now from the this is super gross, but it's probably important for you to understand it file. Research published in the Journal of Environmental Pollution shows that viruses, including those which can cause vomiting and diarrhea, can attach to microplastics. You know, the kind of plastics that are five millimeters long or smaller, the kind that we're worried are sort of the byproduct of plastics in the ocean. And they wind up being so small, they can then get back into either the air or the respiratory stream. We found them in kind of like 97% of children's bodies that we've tested. I mean, it's really, really weird and bad. 
Because when plastic goes into the ocean, the churning effect of the water grinds up into smaller bits and pieces. If you've ever seen like the glass beaches out west, that same kind of concept, only far, far smaller and therefore a lot more concerning. What they've found is that the microplastics aren't only bad because they're microplastics, but they're bad because they can serve as unique carrier hosts for viruses that can be dangerous to humans. Basically, if a virus gets into the water, it doesn't live very long. It doesn't survive very long. But if it can get into the microplastics, then it's protected from the environment and it's able to survive as much as three days long or even longer by kind of hiding out in the nooks and crannies, so to speak. And by binding to the microplastic surface, the virus particles are protected against things like ultraviolet light that would normally kill them off, especially if there's a large clump or concentration of microplastics present. Now, the study did this with two different kinds of viruses. One is the rotavirus, the human gastrointestinal virus, and the other one is bacteriophage virus, PHI-6. Now, what's interesting about these is the bacteriophage has a lipid casing and a protein kind of protecting it. Normally, that's to its advantage. But in this case, the rotavirus that doesn't have those things actually did better because the theory is that the casing doesn't just protect the virus, but it inhibits the virus's ability to benefit from attaching itself to the microplastics. So left to their own devices, the bacteriophage is going to last longer, but attaching to the microplastics, the rotavirus lasts longer. So what's the takeaway from all of this? I don't know, man, but the more we learn about how these microplastics interact with the natural environment and here with human pathogens, we're not really discovering ways they make the world a better place. Let's just put it that way. And finally, from the stuff you had no idea you absolutely needed, but it turns out you actually did file, I take you to a women's soccer match, particularly the Chilean women's national soccer team playing South American rivals Venezuela at Estadio La Granja Curico. I know my Spanish is terrible, but you can live with it. Now, this is kind of a friendly match, a warm-up for the Copa America Femenina Obviously, they still wanted to win, but it wasn't exactly the most thrilling match of all history. The Chilean team got one shot on goal the whole game. Venezuela winds up winning the match 1-0 thanks to a Mariana Speckmeyer goal eight minutes from the end of time. So, you know, 82 minutes of nothing. Nobody cares about any of that. The thing they care about is what happened at the 37th minute, when for reasons that we're still not entirely sure about, a spectator managed to make his way onto the field. Now, you know, spectators go onto the field for all kinds of reasons. Typically what? Uh, Alcohol. Uh, Alcohol and uh, alcohol are main reasons. Also to protest or make some political point. Uh, Peer pressure is often involved, especially with alcohol. And sometimes, of course, they're without clothing. Well, in this case, the spectator was absolutely without clothing because it was a black lab mix. And the dog went on the field that nobody knows where it came from, but managed to get right up into the goalkeeper's box, lay down and do what dogs do, ask for a pet. So naturally, the goalie obliged. And as she was petting him and then trying sort of half-heartedly to corral him, he gets up and runs away and goes around to a couple of different players. And eventually, they think they've kind of got him corralled. Of course, the crowd is loving all of this, completely distracted from the otherwise uninspiring events going on on the pitch. But at one point, they think they've got him, and then he breaks free and runs right across the center of the field, which is by far the best moment of the video. You can watch the video at Newsweek, by the way. And yes, the crowd was roaring, partially because it was entertaining, partially because it was the most excitement the game had had entirely to that point. 
So eventually the dog gets more pets, rolls around on the ground some more. A couple of different players eventually manage to pick it up and carry it off the field. And to this day, we still don't know. Was it a political protest? Was the dog drinking too much alcohol? Was there a little bit of canine peer pressure involved? Again, the one thing we know for sure is the dog was completely naked, which is kind of expected in these scenarios. And I will say for my part, since I'm not much of a soccer fan, I found this about the most entertaining soccer I've ever watched. And it made me wonder if there couldn't be maybe sort of the minor league baseball equivalent of soccer in the future, where we just randomly release animals to go run on the field during the middle of play. But we don't stop play. They just keep on going and try to work around the obstacles. I mean, who knows whether a random zebra or raccoon or, I don't know, bobcat on the field might not make things more interesting. On the other hand, I have watched Ted Lasso, and I know that having animals near the soccer field doesn't always work out the best for the animal or the players. That's it for the Daily Break. Be sure to head over to Newsweek.com for these stories and more, including our growing podcast lineup, and consider subscribing to the digital and print editions of Newsweek if you haven't already. While you're here, hit the five-bark rating. I appreciate it. I'm Andrew Tallman. Thanks for listening to The Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek.